thank you this morning that we are your church, not because anything that we have done of ourselves, but because Christ has claimed the victory through his death and resurrection. We stand in what you have accomplished. We stand in righteousness that is not of our own. It's the righteousness of Christ, the pure, spotless Lamb of God given for us so that we could have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray even now that if there are those this morning who do not know Jesus, that you would use our time together through the singing, through the teaching of your word, through the fellowship that will happen afterwards, that you will draw hearts to yourself, that your Holy Spirit will have his way, that he will convict us of sin, that he will lead us to righteousness. For those in this audience, those who are watching online, who know you as their Savior, Lord, that you would do the work that we just sang, that you would help your church to arise, that worship wouldn't just be centered here on Sunday morning, but that our worship would spill out and flow into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, that it would permeate our our uh, work life, our community life, our interactions in the store and with the, the individuals who are fixing our vehicles, Lord, in every way that they would see the light of Christ coming from your people. We pray that you would be honored and magnified this morning, that your Holy Spirit would direct us in our thinking, would help to, to clarify any of the the, the things that are said that, that need help and clarification, help us, O oh God, to walk away from this place as those who have not only been informed by the truth, but changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my prayer for you last night, my prayer for you this morning has been found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. This is the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church of Philippi, and he says that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. That's what Paul wants. That's what God wants is for an abounding kind of love, a, a love that's not stagnant, a love that is not compartmentalized, but, but a love that spills out, that abounds and flows appropriately with discernment and flows appropriately with knowledge. It says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. And so be pure and spotless on the day of Christ. And this is what captured my attention. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which, by the way, is the fruits of justice. That's what we're talking about this morning. That comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When we live as God's people, representing the perfect righteousness of Christ, the perfect justice of Christ in this world, we shine the gospel to the glory of God. That, that, that is the goal. That's the goal of our life. Our, our mission in this world is to present Christ in his radiant glory to the world. And it happens through righteousness and justice. Well, I want to just encourage you here before I forget. Um, there are two different versions of the notes back there. Uh, the, the first version is the kind of Reader's Digest. It's kind of the normal the normal version. Uh, the second version is the expanded version, and it has all of the, the verses that we're going to be not covering today, but kind of help to provide some 
supporting evidence, as it were, uh, the, the statements that I'll make this morning from the Word of God rest on truths from the Scripture, and I'm not going to be able to cover the hundred plus verses that are here in, in the notes. So as you're walking out and you want to do some more study for yourself, uh, pick this up. It'll be beneficial to you. This morning's message is meant to be an overview. We spend a lot of time in exposition. We spend a lot of time going deep. But, but I, I want to use Romans 6, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We, 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 we talked about that last week, and I, I want to apply it by looking at the Scripture from start to finish. So this is a kind of a comprehensive, more of an apologetic kind of message, more of an introduction to you to help you see what does justice look like in the world. And then as you take those truths home and look at them a little bit more carefully, begin to apply it to your life, okay? As we get started, I want to just provide an introduction uh, where we've been and where I want to go this morning. We've, we've been building and laying foundations. We've been trying to lay the groundwork for, for this study this morning. It's all been kind of building up to this. And then also next week, Pastor David will be preaching for us next week from James chapter 1 and 2. Help us understand what, what, is, what does love look like in the Christian community? But it's based upon these foundations that we've been laying over the last several weeks. Week 1, we talked about Scripture is all you need. Scripture is all you need. And that, that is important because we don't need to go to the world. We don't need to go to philosophies. We don't need to go to, to secular uh, opinions to, to figure out how, how we're supposed to engage in this world. We need to go to the Scripture. It's sufficient. Everything else is just worldly wisdom that we saw in James chapter 3. It's earthly, sensual, and demonic. It's, it's actually opposed to God. So, so we've got to go to the right source. We need to find the truth, and uh, the justice that we find in the Scripture is sufficient to, to direct our attention. Week two, it was important for us to help you see that condemnation is what you deserve. Now, our, our world does not want to talk about condemnation. It doesn't want to talk about judgment. But, but as we looked at Romans chapter 3, we saw there is none righteous, no, not one. So you and I are enemies of God. And as enemies of God, we deserve judgment. The next breath that you'll take is a mercy of God. The enjoyment that you have of friendships is a mercy of God. The provision that you're able to give to your families, the, the food that you eat, when you leave this place for lunch, is a mercy of God. You deserve judgment. I deserve condemnation. But because of God's kindness to us, He gives us space to come to Him in salvation by recognizing that He is the only one who saves. That helped us to, to understand this common grace, which was week three. The common grace that, that God gives to culture to help preserve it, help protect it, help safeguard it. If you want to know how to engage the world, begin with this. Begin with conditioning your conscience and aligning your conscience to God because the culture is going to try to reprogram, redefine God's standards. And, and as we give way to those standards, we're giving way to this common grace. By the way, uh, I'm not sure if you realize this, but there are certain batteries, I think like nickel hydride batteries in particular, if, if you don't charge it up all the way, you don't get it to the full charge, you set it now at a new level. So if the level was here, but you only charge it to here, now this is now the max. And, and every time you only charge it to the max, it gets lower and lower. So you lose 
um, more uh, length of time, battery life, okay? The same is true in culture. As we, as we give ground to common grace, we're giving way to culture, and we're not setting the line. We're not helping to preserve the way God has called us to preserve. Family and church and government are all graces that God gives to us as culture, and as God's people, we need to embrace these common graces to help shine the light of the gospel into the world. Week four, we saw what justice means. We, we saw what biblical justice is. We looked at Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. We'll, we'll look at that again just briefly this morning as a segue into our study this morning. We saw that justice begins with God. He's the source of all justice. And, and if we want to know what justice looks like, we have to go to God for what justice looks like. This morning, we're going to apply justice and see how justice shows up in faith. Our faith for God and our faith in God's program so that we as God's people can be the agent of the gospel into the world, the agent of justice into the world. We, we try to define, we began to define what biblical justice looks like. We, we looked in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and I would just encourage you to open up. Or I have it on the screen, but, but see it for yourself, because I, I want to encourage you to underline some of these words, okay? Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can look in the Pew Bible. It's on page 939 in the Pew Bible. Here's what it says. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We began to see what real biblical justice is, and we saw that biblical justice begins with God. God is the source of justice. God is the source of justice. And in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He is the only holy one. He is the only just one. He is the only pure one. If we want to understand righteousness, if we want to understand justice, we need to know who God is. These words are interchangeable throughout the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's sadiq. In the New Testament, it's dikaios. And, and those words uh, are translated either righteous or just, depending upon the verse that you go to. But they're, they're one and the same. You want justice? Know God. He's the source. And the justice of God or the righteousness of God is revealed. It's revealed. So Scripture is the standard of justice. Scripture is the standard of justice. God has revealed his justice to us, as we see in Romans chapter 1, through creation. He shows up. He, all of his invisible attributes can be clearly seen in creation. But, but specifically, he gives us the revelation of himself in his word that emphatically states what justice is, what justice looks like. And we're going to kind of take this, this, uh, this, this uh, uh, when I say, this tour of the Bible this morning, okay? I'm going to try to take you this, 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 this tour of the Scripture so you can see how justice shows up in the Scripture. Scripture is the standard of justice. I want you to see the gospel is the agent of justice. Because I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the, the good news. The good news that, that righteousness exists. That righteousness is of God. That he is the source. But we can enjoy the benefits of righteousness and justice through his son. 
Jesus Christ, who came to rescue and save and deliver us from corruption, the corruption of ourselves that we saw in Romans chapter 3. We saw that faith is the goal of justice because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The finish line of justice is to call you to faith in God, to call you to relationship with God because if God is the source of justice, we can only enjoy justice as we know God. And then finally, eternity will be the proof of justice. At the end of the day, when all is said and done, the justice of God will be proved emphatically, categorically. It will either be proved, his righteousness will be proved, by those who believe in Jesus, who was the only perfect righteous one, and his righteousness applied to your credit, and you can enjoy the benefits of peace with God in relationship with God in eternity forever. Or, those who are outside of Christ will experience the righteousness of God by condemnation in hell forever because of their sin. The justice of God will be born out in eternity. Just so you can see this for yourself, I, I, uh, there's a slide with these, uh, this verse, and um, you can see how all of these pieces fit together in this verse. We see God is the source. We see that the gospel is the agent. Scripture is the standard. Faith is the goal in eternity is the proof. All of these things showing up in these two verses, and we're going to expand on that this morning as we look into the Word of God and see how true justice plays out. But, but I want to begin by, by contrasting biblical justice with social justice. What's, what's the difference? How can I begin to see how these two are incompatible? Well, I want you to know that if God is the source of biblical justice, who would you expect to be the source of social justice? Got to hear people. People are the source of social justice. It's carried out by individuals. Uh, it originates with them. They, they are the, 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 the ones who are, who are called to overcome whatever oppressor there might be. And if Scripture is the standard in biblical justice, opinion becomes the standard of social justice. It's open. It's subjective. It's open for opinion. What, whoever is in, in control can tell you what social justice reform is supposed to look like. And then critical theory becomes the agent. Or, by the way, whatever modern philosophy there is in the day. Today it might be critical theory. Tomorrow it's going to be something else. Whatever the philosophy is in the, in the world, I want you to recognize it is and it has become another gospel. It becomes another way for people to enjoy some sort of temporary rescue but it is not the real rescue that comes in the gospel. In biblical justice, if faith is the goal, in social justice, experience becomes the goal. What I experience personally, what, 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 what has been my personal understanding through experience of whatever kind of suffering or oppression I might be going through. And then finally, in biblical justice, if eternity is the proof, in social justice, today is the proof. The here and now, the, what I see showing up today becomes the evidence of whether or not justice is happening. It's the outcomes that, that I see in everyday life. And I'm not looking for eternity, I'm looking for today. You can see, as we compare these two, they're incompatible. <laughs> and so we need to make sure that when we look for justice, we're looking for justice in the right place. 
So, so what do we do with verses like James 1.27? We're going to look at that. Dave, Pastor David's going to teach on that more next week. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There, there's some justice taking place. There, there is the overcoming oppression. There is a desire for mercy and help that comes to, to, to those who are experiencing a measure of suffering. And we as believers, as those who embrace and love justice, are those who will engage in these ways. But we must engage in a way that is consistent with the Scripture. So how does biblical justice engage the world? How does biblical justice engage the world? What I'd like to do is I want to preach this message in five minutes, okay? And then I want to come back, and then we'll go through uh, the things, the points that I have have, uh, have shared, and we're going to try to fill them out a little bit more, okay? So, so here we go. We're going we're to take a, a look through history. We're going to look at the history of God in terms of presenting justice to his people in the Old Testament. It came, by the way, through a covenant relationship. It came at Mount Sinai, where God is establishing a relationship with his people. He is communicating his standard through the law. We know justice. We know God because he tells us what he, what he looks like in the law. But those who want to enjoy justice, those who want to enjoy mercy, those who want to experience the, the benefits of being a part of the favor of God must have a relationship. They must be part of the covenant community. Otherwise, they're cut off from those benefits. Does that make sense? Then we move into the center. We, we look at Jesus, and we have to do a fly over the Psalms and over the prophets. They talk about the Messianic kingdom. They talk about, and there's lots of material we could cover there, but I just want to cover these three segments of history. We're covering the Mosaic Law. We're going to cover the ministry of Jesus because we know that Jesus' ministry was generous. We know that Jesus' ministry was impartial. We know that Jesus, he, he mixed it up with the, the poor and oppressed. He, he, he came for those kinds of people. He, he loved the religious elite, but he was also the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He healed everyone wherever they were. They were in the cities. They were in the countryside. They were in the desert. They were near the, 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 the Sea of Galilee. Wherever Jesus was, he ministered to people, with one exception. We find, and we're going to see as we kind of flesh this out a little bit more, that Jesus is emphatic about coming only to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus' ministry focused on the covenant community. That's important. It's really important. Because if you want to experience true justice, you have to have a relationship with God. It has to drive you to the goal of faith. That is what justice does. Okay? Then we can move now to the church. How does justice show up in the church? Well, we see the same affection for Jesus in following in his example. He, they were generous. They were sacrificial. They were compassionate. They sold their possessions, and they shared, by the way, among the covenant community. They sold their possessions in Acts chapter 2, and they distributed among themselves. They sold their possessions in Acts chapter 4, and distributed among themselves. They sold their possessions in Acts chapter 6, and they distributed among the Hellenistic Jews. They sold their possessions in Acts chapter 11, 
and there was famine that was going to happen in the land, and they distributed to the churches in Judea. We see it in Romans chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. We see this ministry of the church in terms of justice as it relates to the covenant community. Because in engaging the world, they engage the world with the gospel. They, they engage the, the world where the world needs it most. That they engage the world where the world needs Jesus. They need, they need to fix the brokenness of, of their deepest need, the, the sin that is separating them from God. You fix that, and then you can begin to, to worry about other symptoms, the other brokenness, the other consequences that come because of sin in our life. So that's an overview. I think that was five minutes. And now let's press forward. And we'll kind of develop this a little bit more. And, and by the way, we're just, we're just glancing off the surface here, okay? And, and, and that's why I, I've provided for you the, the study guide so that you can go deeper for yourself. But I, I want to just fill this out so you can see it for yourself. How does biblical justice engage the world? First, biblical justice is comprehensive. Biblical justice is comprehensive because if God is the source of justice, and God is truly righteous, then, then God's standard of righteousness is going to touch every part of your life. It's going to affect your public life and your private life, the way you eat, the way you worship, the way you work, everything that you do, it's going to touch every part of your life. It's comprehensive in every way. You know, I was kind of thinking about this a little bit. You know, I Maybe some of you are, have been or are on a diet. And some of you might say, hey, I'm on a really strict diet. I, I diet 21 hours of the day. I, I, I diet from, from midnight to 8 o'clock in the morning. Then I, I diet from 9 o'clock to noon. And then I diet from 1 o'clock till 5 o'clock. But I still can't figure out why I, I can't get control of things in my life. Maybe, maybe James chapter 2 will, will help us understand. To make the correlation, it says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles or falls in one point, he is guilty of all. You might, you might be able to say to yourself, you know what, I, I, I'm fulfilling the obligations of God's law in every place. And there's only one little thing over here that is out of step. But God says, you're guilty. You're guilty. You're condemned. You're worthy of judgment. Because you can keep the whole law and stumble in one place, but you're still a lawbreaker. We need to understand the comprehensive nature of justice. And this understanding of justice, by the way, is, is incompatible with the world. And there's a, a reason for that. We find in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 5, or 28, verse 5, it says, Evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. I can't think of a better way to summarize the problem. You're going to hear a lot of messages from this world about what justice looks like. Don't believe it. Look to the source. Look to God. The Bible is the standard of justice. And it's comprehensive in nature. It affects every part of your life. Biblical justice is also relational. It's also relational. And, and the technical word is it is covenantal. <laughs> because this is beautiful. You look back in the Old Testament, you see 
that when God is establishing relationships with his people, he does it through contract. We call it vows or marriage vows. At the altar, the the exchanging of covenants or exchanging of vows help to establish the conditions of relationship. That's what God does with the people of Israel. He's establishing a relationship with them. He wants them to understand what does justice look like? How can we have a right relationship with God? Well, we have it through the conditions of this covenant, the the expression of righteousness that he gives. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. The Lord is establishing a covenant with Abraham. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you. This relationship, right? And your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I I like the way the New English translation translates this. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. God cares about relationships. This relationship is built in to the Mosaic Covenant. We find in Exodus 19, 5 to 6, where God is establishing this covenant, he's establishing relationship, he says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God desired relationship, covenant, promises, vows, exchanging of vows with his people. And he sets those conditions in the Ten Commandments. And as you know, the first four commandments relate to our relationship with God himself. Things like, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. And then the next six commands are uh, help to express the justice relationships that you have with other people within the covenant community. Things like honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. And, and Jesus, by the way, summarizes all of these commands into two. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Relationship. Because that's, that's what justice does. Justice depends on relationship. Knowing God, loving God, and showing God to the world. It, showing God to the world through the euangelion, the gospel first, inviting them into relationship with God so that you can enjoy as a covenant people the community that God has set up and the benefits of that community. But it only comes one way. It only comes as you submit to the standard of the community, that contract relationship. I want you to see next that biblical justice is merciful. It's merciful because God is merciful. And if God is the source of justice, then we, we're merciful as God is merciful. Exodus 34, 5 to 8 says this. And by the way, this is where where God is showing up to Moses. Moses says, hey, show me your glory. And God says, okay, fine. Here's a glimpse of my glory. He says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, 
passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Justice is merciful because God is merciful. And God is the source of justice and righteousness. And so God's people, in relationship with God, will show justice through mercy. Now, if you have the expanded version of the notes, you'll see several pages of verses that that reinforce this point. I want to just draw your attention to one so you can see kind of a, a taste of what we're talking about. Exodus chapter 22, verses 21 to 24 says this. You shall not wrong a sojourner. And by the way, we can appreciate that justice is going to happen within the community, right? But what about outsiders? What about those who are marginalized? What about those who are experiencing some sort of oppression? What about some, some of those who are different from us? They're, they're not native Jews as far as the, the Jewish community was concerned. What, what about them? How does justice and mercy show up to them? Well, here, here, here's how it, how it happens. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry because a just God will exact justice among his people. He says, and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wife shall become a widow and your children fatherless. Built in to the law was mercy. Built in to the law was justice. It was impartial. We see throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy this desire of God for mercy among his people. One more, Leviticus 19, 9 to 10. says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your fields right up to the edge, neither shall you gather the gatherings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyards bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, I want you to see a couple things. Justice is playing out in two different ways. First, it's playing out in mercy for those who are poor and oppressed and strangers and aliens. Justice is also playing out in preserving the image of God. How? It preserves the image of God because this was the welfare program of the day that preserved dignity by providing work so that these individuals, however oppressed they might have been, could work for their families and they could produce the the benefits that their families could enjoy to sustain them. The image of God was preserved through the law because justice demanded it. We see that all all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the law. But while mercy was there, I want you to understand that biblical justice also is uncompromising. It's uncompromising. Why? Because God is the source of justice and God's standard of holiness and righteousness doesn't change. When we go back to Exodus chapter uh, 34 and we see the, the remainder of this expression of God to Moses when he says in verse 7, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. God's standard of justice will be applied to everyone across the board impartially, and those who want to experience the benefits of the covenant community must submit to the marriage vows, to the contract, to the covenant that God has set. So I've given you verses in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy. I want to just draw your attention to a couple. First is Exodus 12, 49. Here's the unwavering, uncompromising standard of God. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. We're not going to have different laws for different groups because the standard applies equitably across the board. (laughs) This is the mercy of God. You, You enjoy the benefits of the covenant community. You live under contract, under the standard that God has set. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. Otherwise, you'll be stoned because in those who fail to submit to the law will experience the consequence of the law as it relates to things like Passover, in Sabbath, in Day of Atonement, in burnt offerings, in eating blood, in sexual purity, in idolatry, in uh, distinctiveness, in vows, in free will offerings, in blasphemy, in murder, in Passover, in food offerings, in forgiveness, in intentional sins, in taking advantage Uh, in having no regard for the rights of others, in gathering ashes, in cities of refuge, in impartiality, in every way. The law applied to those who were strangers and aliens the same way it applied to those who were native. But the standard was fixed. You want to enjoy the benefits of the covenant community. You live under obligation to the covenant contract. Numbers chapter 9, verse 14 Again, reaffirms, you shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. They're the same in God's eyes. And the benefits of that covenant community could only exist for those who were in relationship with God through following the standard of that covenant community. So let's transition now to Jesus. That's how it showed up in the Old Testament. That that, that is the the law, right? That's where God's justice and wrath is so clearly evident. But but what about Jesus? Jesus was full of mercy and grace. How does it play out in his ministry where we say the same things? I want you to know that Jesus' mission statement embodied justice. His mission statement embodied justice. We see this in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. It says... And he's quoting, by the way, from Isaiah chapter 61. He's pulling from the Old Testament to help them see the continuity of the standard that was applied now to his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice proclamation. Notice the euangelion. Notice the message of the good news that Jesus is proclaiming to people. But it's a message that he's proclaiming to those who were, who were oppressed, to those who, who were uh, broken individually, physically, but also spiritually. More importantly, spiritually. Broken because... Jesus came for justice. And and in coming for justice, 
He came to overcome the consequences of sin and to lead people to righteousness. The effects of sin that led to blindness, led to oppression, led to captivity, led to, led to slavery, and all manner of, of things that happen because we live in a broken world. We live under the consequences of sin. And Jesus came to help show that he was going to remedy that sin. But, but most importantly, he was going to remedy that sin in the most important way by, by ushering people into peace with God that would come through Jesus, come through the gospel. That was the greatest brokenness of mankind, to overcome our fallenness. And justice would come to penetrate the darkest heart and draw them to himself and proclaim the good news and liberate those who were spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed, spiritually enslaved, so that they could experience freedom that comes through faith in Christ. It led to the goal, the goal of faith. That's what justice does. It leads to the goal of faith. We could, we could look at examples to see that Jesus was generous. Jesus delighted in generosity. In John chapter 12, Judas is criticizing Mary for breaking this precious ointment on Jesus' feet. And he says, hey, we could have sold this for 300 denarii and we could have distributed it to the poor. Meaning, you've done this before, Jesus. I've seen your heart for the poor and here's my opportunity to dip into the money bag. Jesus was generous. Jesus was compassionate. Multiple examples throughout the Gospels in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John where you see the compassionate heart of Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 in particular, says Jesus went about in villages and towns, saw the multitudes, and he marveled. With, he was met with compassion or moved with compassion for the people. He had a heart for people because he saw them for their greatest brokenness, the brokenness of sin. Jesus was also impartial. We see in Matthew chapter 15, verse 30, great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. They put them at his feet, and he healed them. Whole cities would line up at Jesus' door, and he would heal them indiscriminately to show them the power of God, not just to fix their, their physical brokenness, but to point them to spiritual wholeness. He ministered to the spiritual elite. He ministered to the tax collector in the sinner. He ministered to people wherever they were, whether they were demon-possessed or whether they were lepers or blind or paralyzed. Jesus was impartial in his ministry, but Jesus was also uncompromising. How many times does Jesus say, go and sin no more? Because he wanted them to understand that the fix of their temporary disease was inadequate to deal with the, the real disease of their heart. Isaiah 53, where it says, by his stripes you were what? You were healed. You were healed. And that's not a physical healing, by the way. That's a healing that goes to the heart of every person who desperately needs to be fixed spiritually by their brokenness. By, your, by his stripes, you were healed. God bridged the gap through Christ. How many times does Jesus say, your sins are forgiven you? Because Jesus was uncompromising in his ministry. But finally, Jesus prioritized the covenant community. He prioritized the covenant community. 
We see this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. We see this where Jesus is sending out his disciples. And he wants his disciples to know who is the target audience. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It was important for the disciples to remain within the covenant community because it was important as justice was happening in terms of overcoming physical ailments that these people had a knowledge of a relationship with God, a knowledge of the gospel. Maybe you say, well, what about the Syrio-Phoenician woman? What about the centurion? Well, what about Jesus' ministry to them? And I just want to point out just briefly in Matthew chapter 15, 21 to 28, So this lady says, will you heal my demon-possessed daughter? And Jesus ignores her. He just puts her off. Because what he's trying to do, he's trying to draw her out. And Jesus says in verse 24, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Confirming this statement. And she says, well, but Jesus, um, I'll I'll read it. (laughs) She came and knelt before him, Lord, help me. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, here it is, great is your faith. He invited her in by faith. Justice, the goal is to lead to faith. He invites her in to this covenant community, and now he can begin the process of healing her in another way. The greatest need of her heart had been healed. Her her need for God, her relationship with with God through Jesus. And now Jesus could deal with the other issues, this need for her daughter to be healed. Same was true of the centurion. Jesus draws out the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 10. At the end, he says, With no one in Israel have I found such faith. Drawing out the faith of the centurion, helping to establish that the centurion, while an outsider, while a stranger, while an alien to native Israel, was operating within this covenant contract, this community relationship that he had with God. Now briefly, how do we see biblical justice playing out in the church? And we're going to see the exact same things in the church that we saw in the ministry of Jesus. We're going to see that the church was generous. The church was compassionate. The church was impartial. The church also was uncompromising. And the church prioritized the covenant community. Let me just provide a a couple of verses to fill this out so you can see how this plays out. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 45. This is the the example of of this church that has just begun to have faith in in Jesus, saving faith because of his death and resurrection. And and, and the intensity of their togetherness is seen here. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And, And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all, here it is, all who believed were together, this is the covenant community, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Prioritizing the covenant community. We see the same in Acts chapter 4. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 6. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 11 and throughout the rest 
of the Scripture. Their generosity, their compassion for others, the impartiality of their love and distributing to, to those who were Hellenistic Jews, those who were, who were people of, of poverty, but they were also uncompromising. I want to just draw your attention, finally, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 15. In chapter 1, Paul commends this church for their love. Uh, they, were, they were the Philippians 1 kind of church. Their, their love abounded for others. But, but love had a condition. And the condition is set by the Apostle Paul here in chapter 4. It says, actually it should say chapter 3. That's my bad. It says, we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you receive from us. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now those are really harsh, difficult words. But it's because the standard is a standard that we must, we must follow. We must understand that, that, that justice comes from God. And it must be distributed in the way that God has shown or seen fit to distribute that standard. There is a reason Perhaps the greatest reason that we saw a few weeks ago is that God introduces crisis in our life to lead us to greater things. God introduces hardship in our life to lead us to Him. And if we as people step in the way and we become Savior instead of allowing God to be Savior, then we have jeopardized or risked the work of the gospel in the lives of individuals. We've prioritized the things that are temporary rather than prioritizing the things that are spiritual. And as God has called us to this great work among the community of Christ, it is, a, it is an overwhelming task. If we, if we uh, distribute our kindness and focus our efforts outside when we should be focusing our, what do I say, justice efforts, helping efforts within, then we've spent our resources, spent our energy in things that are secondary instead of primary. Our mission to the world is a mission that must be uh, anchored in the gospel. That's what Matthew chapter 28 says. It says, go into the world and preach the gospel. Point them to Jesus, the greatest need for their, for their souls. And then you can begin to minister to the other parts of their life, the secondary parts, the, the temporary parts of their life. Galatians chapter 6 does provide some balance. It says, as you have opportunity, do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so as we are mingling with people at work, we're mingling with people in our community, the the outflow of God's kindness is spilling on the world around us. It's going to happen. But the primary focus of our justice efforts need to be the people in God's community. Imagine Imagine what might happen 
if we had a heart to put this to work so that those who were poor and oppressed in other countries or those who were poor and oppressed even in our own community, if we poured out our kindness to them and, and, and that community got to see that there was other churches who cared for, for those individuals, well, what might that do to attract them to, to the real gospel? Wow, this is a community that loves, loves one another. This is a community that meets needs. That's what we saw or see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And God, it says, added to their number daily those who were being saved. The explosive growth in the New Testament church happened because they followed God's program for justice. May we be those who also condition our hearts to follow God's program too. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for the instruction that you give in your word, that it's consistent, and that it helps to, to challenge us to be more than just those who come on Sunday morning and sing a couple songs and listen to the scripture, but it's a full-bodied kind of justice that, that John talked about earlier that engages those who are hurting. It shows mercy and compassion and kindness and love. But help us to do it in a way that is representative of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you this week as you go. Thank you.